Recorded live. I'm sorry. Help to plug the microphone in. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 14, 2014. I have a few things to talk about. First, the um, the new chat room at Christagenia. I see attendance is a little light. There's probably some... Well, there's at, at least a few regular users, re- regular chat room denizens that probably didn't get my email or didn't check the email or for some other reason are having a hard time, you can log in to the new Christagonia website just like you logged into the old one. I had transferred all the user accounts over to the new site. And um, once you log in, you click on the chat balloons that appear only if you logged in. Or, or there's a chat link that's always there on the main menu. And you can um, participate in the chat room. If you updated your password since I deactivated the old site, you'll have to use the password recovery link, which actually does work. I can't help that if you change your password. The, um, the chat room at Christagenia, it took me a while to get it going. It's built on some cutting-edge technology. I explained it in a, in a mailing earlier this week. It's um, technology that allows me to um, have a lot of other capabilities on my website. I'll be experimenting with that probably on Christagenia or on some of the other related websites. It, 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 does, um, it, it, it does things like live data feeds and, and, and all kinds of neat th- new things like that. I don't know if I'm going to need any of that functionality. That, that's the problem. I am using it for um, database logs to watch the hackers and, and the other traffic at Christagenia, and that's already come in handy because I've caught two people with it so far trying to flood my websites with expensive SQL queries, and, and I've been able to block them. The Saxon Messenger. I, I mailed out the um, the December Saxon Messenger this week. I know it's February. I've been behind all year. I can't keep up, and I'm afraid that the um, the, the quality will fall off if I keep trying to force myself to keep up. What I'm going to do is, starting in 2014, I'm going to disconnect the Saxon Messenger from the calendar and hopefully produce eight or ten issues a year of a higher quality. I'll, um, from now on, produce Saxon Messengers as I can rather than trying to meet these monthly deadlines, which are probably um, kind of commercial and Jewish anyway. Uh, but it, it's the tradition of our society to release publications on such a time schedule that there's a lot of traditions in society that we shouldn't necessarily follow and we fall into patterns and, and um, force ourselves to follow. So, so I'm going to drop the Saxon Messenger from the calendar and, and hopefully shoot for eight to ten issues a year 
and it will simply be given an, a serial number. The next issue, of course, would be number 37. I pray that I can have it out in early March, and, and, and we'll go from there and take things a step at a time. Over the past three years here on Fridays at Christagenia, we have offered commentaries on the biblical writings of Matthew, then Malachi, a commentary which I had never put into writing, then Mark, Jonah, Obadiah, James, Hosea, Peter, Joel, Jude, Luke, Amos, and Acts. And now we shall discuss the book of Micah. If you have been following us that long, it may be evident that we have been progressing through both the New Testament and the Minor Prophets while alternating between the two. Yahweh willing, it shall soon be the letters of Paul, during which I hope to intersperse presentations of Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Haggai, leaving Zechariah, and then perhaps a more complete version of Malachi for the days following that, Yahweh willing. When I hope to then present the writings of the Apostle John, and even redo the Revelation commentary, which I had, um, well, well, I won't even say how I did the last one. The, the last one, 14 installments, I, I could probably um, go into more depth than that in, in the future. And uh, it's not that I'm dissatisfied with the last one. It, it's a little disjointed, and, and it could have been better if I did it alone. Let's put it that way. That's my goal at Christagenia, if Yahweh permits it, is to ultimately have a commentary on all of the books of Scripture freely available at Christagenia.org. That means writing a Genesis commentary, too, and I've been collecting notes. That's a, it, it, it's, um, well, well, it takes time. That commentary, I hope, will eventually represent the foundation for entire Christian identity Bible commentary. Since I'm writing it as I go along, there is still a lot of work to do. With this, we will commence with the prophecy of Micah. The people in the chat room will have to excuse me. There, there aren't a whole lot of people in talk show tonight. I guess um, Micah isn't exactly a big draw. People will have to excuse me. I'm alone tonight. My brother Matthew Ott couldn't make it here. And um, I don't think I'll be able to pay much attention to, to, the, um, <clears throat> to, to, to turning text on and off for, for people that want to chat. That, that's why I have a Christiania chat. It's by invite only, and it's troll-free. The prophecy of Micah parallels those of Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos, who were all prophets of the 8th century B.C. The ministries of all four of these prophets were focused on forecasting God's impending judgment of the ancient northern kingdom of Israel, although they all also prophesied of other things, such as the sin and impending judgment of Judah and Jerusalem, of Christ, and of Israel's eventual restoration. The prophet Jonah is earlier than any of these, 
but he was not concerned with the destruction of Israel. Rather, Jonah sought the preservation of Israel, imagining that Yahweh would destroy the encroaching Assyrians instead. It was demonstrated in our presentation of Amos that Assyria and Israel had been struggling back and forth for over a hundred years before the final destruction of Samaria. For instance, we had demonstrated from correlating the Bible with certain ancient Assyrian inscriptions that the restoration of Israel, to Israel, I'm sorry, of Hamath, Damascus, and the northern plains by Jeroboam II, which is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, was in response to earlier Assyrian subjugation of that area. The Assyrians took it away from Israel, and under Jeroboam II, Israel gained it back. Even earlier than that, we saw in Assyrian inscriptions that the Israelite king Ahab had sent a force of 10,000 foot soldiers to join a mostly Syrian coalition army against Assyrian expansion into the Levant, something which is not mentioned in the Bible. Ahab was over 100 years before Jotham, the king of Judah, when Micah began his ministry. The lesson of the gourd in Jonah is that Yahweh was indeed going to use Assyria's expanding empire to preserve Israel by taking Israel into captivity. Jonah recorded the lesson of the gourd, but he evidently did not understand it. The next prophet after Micah is Nahum, a prophet of the 7th century who was indeed focused on Yahweh's revenge against the Assyrians something which Isaiah also prophesied about at length. The prophet Joel, usually and incorrectly dated to an earlier period, was also a prophet of the 7th century B.C., as the third book of his, of his prophecy demonstrates. I'm, I'm sorry, the third chapter of his prophecy demonstrates. Obadiah is also usually dated to have been written at an early time. But his prophecy could not have been written until after the fall of Jerusalem, for which we may see Obadiah verses 10 through 14. Scholars who dispute the prophecies concerning Edom found in Obadiah do not understand who Edom is in the world today, and therefore they cannot understand Obadiah or Malachi. Aside from these and a few other less significant questions, the King James translators were fair in the balance of their estimations of the proper order of the minor prophets. The prophecy of Micah has three basic messages, the sin, punishment, and restoration of Israel, which are repeated in different ways. An abuse of Micah feeds Judeo- Zionist interpretations concerning Palestine today, and they, with their sick fantasies concerning the enemies of Christ, actually deny Micah's true message. Micah's writing is most notable for its messianic prophecy found in chapter 5, and its prophecy 
of the gathering of Israel found in chapter 4. Those will be interesting. As the name Michael, which we see in Daniel chapter 12 and several other places of Scripture, as the name Michael means who is like God, the name Micah means who is like Yahweh. There were other men with this name and also another prophet with this name who lived at least a hundred years sooner, and that is Micaiah, the son of Imlah, mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 22. This here Micah, his ministry is attested by the prophet Jeremiah, who quoted Micah 3.12, where Jeremiah 26.18, in that place he had written that Micah the Moristite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the places of the forest. Jeremiah goes on to describe the sentiments of the people of Jerusalem towards Micah for this prophecy, where he further states in verse 19, Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him at all to death? Did he, meaning Hezekiah, not fear Yahweh and besought Yahweh? And Yahweh repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them. Thus might we procure great evil against our souls. Jeremiah said these things because the people of Jerusalem wanted to kill him for his own prophecies against Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is telling them that they should repent instead. He's telling them when Micah prophesied against Jerusalem, Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem heard it and repented rather than try to kill Micah. Comparing this testimony of Jeremiah with the records of Hezekiah's interaction with the prophet Isaiah in 2 Kings chapters 18 through 20, we see that Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah and that both men were in Jerusalem prophesying during Hezekiah's reign. Isaiah began his ministry earlier than Micah. Hosea and Amos were also contemporaries. However, their ministries were primarily conducted in Israel and not so much in Judah. With this, we will commence with the prophecy of Micah. The word of Yahweh that came to Micah the Moristite in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah who reigned during the last days of the northern kingdom. In the period leading up to when Samaria was finally destroyed by the Assyrians, in 722 or 721 B.C. Micah's prophetic ministry may therefore have begun as many as 30 years before Samaria was destroyed, 
which is approximately when Jotham began his rule over Judah. Hezekiah's rule over Judah began about seven years before the destruction of Samaria, and therefore Micah prophesied for at least 20 years, since the rule of Ahaz alone lasted 16. And from the testimony of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 28, 18, and 19, which we have just read, he probably, test, he probably extended his ministry beyond that and, and well into the reign of Hezekiah. We don't know exactly how early he started and how many years he preached during the reign of Jotham. It was at least a couple. Micah, prophesying against both Samaria and Jerusalem, certainly may have seen the destruction of Samaria, which he forewarned, which happened after about seven years of Hezekiah's reign. Micah calls himself Micah the Morristite in the opening verse of his prophecy. We saw Jeremiah repeat that. In verse 14 of this chapter, Micah prophecies concerning Morasheth Gath. The name Morasheth Gath can be interpreted to mean possession of Gath. And some commentators debate whether a place called Morasheth actually existed, or if the word should instead be translated as inheritance or possession of Gath. However, Strong derives the word Morasheth from a Hebrew word which means to expel, and more fully, to occupy a place by driving out the previous inhabitants. And we'll encounter that word again at the end of this, prophet, at the end of this chapter. So it seems that there was indeed a district called Morasheth Gath, where the Israelites had driven out the Philistines of Gath and dwelt in their place. That does not mean, however, that Israel drove the Philistines out of Gath entirely, and, and we'll discuss that later in this chapter. Indeed, Micah mentions Gath by itself in verse 10 of this first chapter of his prophecy. Micah, calling himself the Morisite, was probably from the very Morasheth Gath, which he prophecies in regards to later in the chapter. It may occur to some that Morasite is very close to the word Marashah in Hebrew and, and in English. And Marashah is a place mentioned in verse 15 of this chapter. However, in the Hebrew, the spelling and the meaning of the two words have differences which seem to preclude any possible connection. They're definitely different words. Marashah is worthy of further description when we arrive at where it is mentioned, but it should not be connected to the terms Morasite or Morasheth Gath. I'm having some problems with these headphones tonight. I have some static, and I'm aware of that. I'm trying to... I'm trying to rectify it, and it's simply not cooperating. I apologize for that. We'll try again.
Verse 2. Hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is. And let the Lord, that's the word Adon, the Lord God, that's the word Yahweh in the King James Version, it should say, and let the Lord Yahweh be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Here, the phrase all ye people can only refer to all Israel in the context of the chapter, since his message only concerns that which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And therefore, that word erets, translated earth, can only refer to the land and not the earth as if it referred to the entire planet. There are many such examples in Scripture that show that these words are most often used in a local context. Very rarely are they used in a global one. The only one I could think of offhand is the reference to the circle of the earth in Isaiah. And depending on a perspective, Isaiah could even be referring to that or using that term in a local context because that word circle can mean other things such as circuit. For behold, verse 3, Yahweh cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. And it troubles me when I hear even people who are supposedly identity Christians that want to insist that this has to have a literal fulfillment that's ridiculous. Here Micah uses poetic language and a word picture description of God's presence as a means of connecting his judgment to the wrath which is about to come upon the people of the land in the form of the Assyrian invasions. That's all this is referring to. The coming destruction is described in poetic language, much like Jeremiah borrowed poetic language from Genesis chapter 1 in his prophecy, foreboding the destruction of Judah in Jeremiah chapter 4. And Jeremiah says, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of, of Yahweh, and by his fierce anger. For thus hath Yahweh said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. The whole land, even the King James translators understood the context of that. That word translated as land in Jeremiah 4.27 is the same word translated as earth here in this passage from Micah in verses 2 and 3. That passage from Jeremiah, if we read it in the context of Jeremiah chapter 4, and not try to 
pull it out of the context and apply it to some crazy scheme of, of, of some prior Earth age in Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, which is absolutely nuts. That passage from Jeremiah, reading it with the entire chapter, only has to do with Yahweh's judgment of Judah at the hand of the Babylonian invasions. Likewise, this passage of Micah relates to the judgment of Yahweh against Israel at the hand of the Assyrians. Now, we see patterns in history repeat themselves, patterns of sin and judgment. Well, well that, that's not because these prophecies can be interpreted to apply to different things over and over again. That's only because we should learn from the lessons of these prophecies, and we don't. We repeat the same sins, so we suffer the same judgment in a different manner. Verse 5. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? In other words, Jerusalem is a center of idolatry. Samaria is a sin entirely. Even though it was God's will to divide the kingdom after the death of Solomon, Samaria, by its very existence, has become a sin to Israel. And Jerusalem has become a place of idolatry. In the opening chapters of his prophecy, which gives an oracle against Judah and Jerusalem, the prophet Isaiah, who actually began his ministry before Micah, and, and Isaiah will tell you, Micah's prophecy started in the time of Jotham. Isaiah started in the time of Uzziah, who was the king before Jotham. Isaiah, Isaiah's ministry lasted a long time. Isaiah said that their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made, in reference to Judah and Jerusalem. That's Isaiah chapter 2, verse 8. Isaiah began his ministry a few years before Micah, but most of their ministries overlapped. This is earlier, early in Micah's ministry in the days of Jotham, and Jerusalem would later have a religious revival under Hezekiah. As Israel, along with much of Judah, was being carried away captive. Not much is said in Scripture of the reign of Jotham, which is when Micah began his ministry. But Jotham was portrayed as a righteous king, in spite of the fact that he did not take down the centers of idolatry in Judah. Here in part, from 2 Kings chapter 15, from verse 32, in the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, began Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, to reign. Five and twenty years old he was when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. So we should note that he wasn't very old when he died. He was only forty-one. And his mother's name was Jerushah, the daughter of Zadok, and he did that which was right in the sight of Yahweh. 
he did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. How be it? The high places were not removed. The people sacrificed and burned incense still in the high places. He built the higher gate of the house of Yahweh. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? 2 Chronicles chapter 26 contains a similar but slightly more detailed account where it describes a certain war with the Cushites in few verses. The king of Judah between Jotham and Hezekiah was Ahaz, and Ahaz did not that which was right in the sight of Yahweh his God, like David his father, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, yeah, and made his son to pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the heathen, whom Yahweh cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places, and on the hills, and under every green tree. That's 2 Kings 16. Like Jotham, Hezekiah was also described as a righteous king. However, Hezekiah did better by removing the centers of pagan idolatry. Here from 2 Kings chapter 18. Now it came to pass, in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. He still died a young man at 54. His mother's name also was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places and broke the images and cut down the groves. This next sentence is significant. And broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan, which means a thing of brass. In other words, Hezekiah accounted it as nothing. It was only an object, a thing of brass. He, he trusted in Yahweh, God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Of course, there was another great revival, perhaps a hundred years later, under, under Joash. It was quite some time later anyway. With this, it is also evident that the children of Israel had for a long time idolized a historical relic. A lot of people would think, well, well, well that serpent of brass is to be venerated. It's important. Moses made that. Well, well, not if people are worshiping it. Maybe it could have been in a museum, but not if people are going to pay homage and make sacrifices to it as if it's a god. That's crazy. Yet Moses' serpent of brass had been idolized, and Hezekiah smashed it, rightfully so. Even 
good symbols can become idols. The serpent of brass was only an ensign, and when it was made, it represented the healing power of God. But the serpent of brass had no power within itself. There's a lot more that could be said about the serpent of brass, but it's not really pertinent to this discussion. This is a trap which our people have always fallen into, to venerate the form of a thing rather than the substance which that form represents. The symbol, the object, the thing is nothing. What it is that the symbol stands for when it is created or when it is designated, that is what truly matters. Today, the children of Israel do not literally burn incense to objects, unless they're Roman Catholics. However, they do the equivalent by making pilgrimages and venerating certain historical sites or objects by bringing home little metal statues of these things that they paid for, that they paid too much for with their hard-earned money, money that could feed somebody's kids and setting them up on their shelves and dusting them every three months. Those things are things. They shouldn't be venerated. But yet our people venerate those historical sites or historical objects, and at the same time, they abandon the ideals which those objects once represented. The people of Israel, they were venerating the serpent of brass, and Hezekiah rightfully smashed it because they abandoned the ideals and the God which the serpent of brass represented. Verse 6, Therefore I will make Samaria as a heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. Now, rather than heap, the Septuagint has an obscure Greek word here, which Brenton interpreted as a storehouse of the fruits, but which Liddell and Scott interpreted as describing the hut of a garden watcher. The same word appears in Isaiah 1.8, the same Greek word, where he utters a very similar prophecy against Jerusalem. Where Micah said in verse 3, Behold, Yahweh cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Here, Micah describes Yahweh as saying, I will make Samaria as a heap of the field. Many people dispute the scriptures because they expect a literal fulfillment of its prophecies. It is Jewish subterfuge and the typical Jewish mockery of God which leads people to anticipate and demand literal fulfillments of these events. I've actually heard people tell me that if Christ returns, he has to do what Micah says and stand on Mount Zion. That's not necessarily so. This was fulfilled long ago. 
Is Samaria, is the real Samaria still in Palestine? I beckon not. God is mocked again, and the Christian faith is disputed when those literal fulfillments are made to look impossible. The Jews love that trick. The only literal fulfillments we should expect from Scripture are from those things which are explicitly literal promises. We must be able to fairly differentiate between the literal statements of Scripture and the poetic descriptions in its prophecy. Perhaps a couple of dozen years after Micah had written these words, the Assyrians invaded and destroyed Samaria, taking over 27,000 hostages back to Assyria. If Yahweh used the Assyrians to fulfill his word where he said, I will make Samaria as a heap of the field, then we should not expect a literal fulfillment where Micah wrote, Behold, Yahweh cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The Assyrians did that because they were Yahweh's designated agents. Yahweh is telling us that is his doing, that judgment of the, which was fulfilled in the Assyrian destruction of Samaria. That was Yahweh doing that. The Assyrians were his agents. Don't expect a literal fulfillment of these prophecies. That, that's absurd. We have to take the poetic language for what it is. There are plenty of prophecies which are explicit promises with explicit language. Verse 7. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with fire, and all the idols thereof will I, Yahweh, lay desolate. For she gathered it of the hire of a harlot, and they shall return to the hire of a harlot. Now verse 6 said Yahweh would discover the foundation. Samaria and these are the idols which were gathered of the hire of the harlot this is a reference to an intercourse in trade and an unlawful communion both sexual and otherwise and we will see that shortly an unlawful communion with the non-Israel nations we have noticed that there were four prophets who described Israel's sin and forewarned of Israel's imminent destruction on account of that sin. These four prophets are Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, and Micah. All of these men were contemporaries, having ministries which in some degree overlapped those of the others. While all of these men chastised Israel for their sins. Not all of them described those sins in the same exact manner as the others. Some of them focused on different aspects of Israel's sin at different times. So in order to fully understand any of these men, all of them must be studied. It would also be me to study the pertinent sections of the books of 
Kings and Chronicles, as I have just given the descriptions of the reigns of the three kings of Micah's ministry. Since those books also quantify much of the sin of Israel and Judah in the same period, and also help us to understand why the prophet is saying certain things. Now, Hosea, Hosea, Micah's contemporary, Hosea explains in depth exactly what is meant by the saying, the hire of a harlot, when it is used against the nation and especially concerning its idols and its wealth and its goods. Here from Hosea chapter 2, Yahweh said through the prophet, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as, the day, as in a day that she was born. We're all born naked, right? And make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, and my wool, and my flax, mine oil, and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns, and make a wall, that she shall not find her paths, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for there it was better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Meaning they took what Yahweh gave them and used it in international trade with the heathens. Hosea 2.5 therefore defines Israel's whoredom where it says, For their mother has played the harlot, she to conceive them as done, as done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool, my wool and my flax, mine oil, and my drink. From this we see that Israel, chasing after the trade in merchandise with other nations, thereby made herself a whore. It is not a coincidence that the mystery Babylon of the Revelation is described as a place of international trade. Hosea discusses the same sin of Israel again in the twelfth chapter of his prophecy. Ephraim feeds on the wind and follows after the east wind, probably all the way to China. He daily increases lies and desolation, and they do make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried into Egypt. He is a merchant, 
the balances of deceit are in his hand. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, yet I am become rich. I have found me out substance. Yahweh supplies our substance. Hosea chapter 2. In all my labors, they shall find none iniquity in me that were sin. Well, that was Ephraim's attitude, but it wasn't true. Yahweh saw Ephraim's trade, his international trade, as sin. In chapter 5 of his prophecy, Hosea tells us that one result of this intercourse with Israel sought with this intercourse which Israel sought with the other nations was race mixing. That's why in Hosea chapter 2, Yahweh said that he would not have mercy on their children, for they are the children of whoredoms. In Hosea chapter 5, Yahweh says, They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh. For they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. Ezekiel later expounds on the same idea where he says, and he's speaking to Judah later on, but he's talking about Judah's intercourse with the other nations where he says, Thou hast built thy high place at every head of the way, pagan idolatry. That's where race mixing was most profuse in the Baal temples. And has made my beauty to be abhorred, the Baal temples, the groves. And has opened thy feet, that's an archaic way of saying, spread thy legs. To everyone that passed by, and multiplied thy whoredoms. Politicians in America are about to begin the debate over ratification of the so-called Trans-Pacific Partnership, so-called Free Trade Agreement. However, this is only the most recent of a series of such evil agreements the nation has entered into over the past 50 or so years. NAFTA, GATT, there's a whole list of them. These treaties are evil because they make Christian Israel the economic bed partners of non-white so-called nations. They make Christian Israel into the same kind of whore that ancient Israel had become for the very same reasons. The inevitable results are the multiculturalism, diversity, and mixed-race unions which we see in abundance today. We sought trade with other nations. We're begetting strange children. All of these things are promoted by the international merchants among whom the Edomite Jews are predominant. Verse 8. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. The Septuagint has the second person here rather than the first, which makes a lot more sense. And I'll read Breton's edition. Therefore shall she, meaning Israel, lament and wail. 
she shall go barefooted, and being naked, she shall make lamentation as that of serpents, and mourning as of the daughters of sirens. Sirens are figures from Greek mythology. Israel sought after profit in the trade with other nations, yet the result of that venture is that Israel is to be left stripped bare and naked. This is the same punishment which Yahweh declared for the same reason in Hosea chapter 2, where it says, Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness. A proper and unbiased histor historical study of our so-called free trade ventures throughout history would reveal that the Jewish international merchants are behind them all, and they only truly profit, only they truly profit from such ventures. Then they use these profits to gain political, economic, and even social control over the nations that subscribe to this system. And then they bleed those nations dry of all their resources for the sake of their own profit. Looking at America today, this is clearly evident. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. Verse 9. For her wound is incurable, for it has come unto Judah. He is come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Her wound is incurable. The use of the second person pronoun here as a reference to the nation seems to vindicate the Septuagint reading of the verse of verse 8 as the more accurate one. Both the New American Standard Version and the Septuagint have it has come unto the gate of my people, rather than he. And that's a reference back to the same wound that's incurable that befell Israel. By this we see that the sins for which Israel is condemned are also being practiced in Judah. And of course they were. Declare ye it not at Gath, verse 10. Weep ye not at all. In the house of Aphra, roll thyself in the dust. The phrase, declare ye, it, declare ye it not a gath, may have been something of a proverb. In 1 Samuel 1.20, at the death of Saul and Jonathan, we see the exclamation, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. In other words, don't tell the Philistines because we don't want them triumphing over the shame of Israel. I want to talk about Gath. Control over the cities of the Philistines had alternated between the Philistines and Israel. In 1 Samuel 7.14, we read in part, And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even unto Gath. And the coast thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines. Now Goliath, the giant, was himself from Gath, and we see that attested 
in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Evidently, the Israelites didn't clear out the Canaanites from these Philistine cities. Later, as it is described in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David, fleeing from Saul, sought refuge with Achish, the king of Gath, where the city is once again in Philistine hands. Yet it did not remain with them, as we read in 1 Chronicles 18.1, that now after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them and took Gath and her towns out of the hands of the Philistines. Again, in the genealogies of the children of Benjamin, it is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 8 that Bariah also and Shema, who were heads of the fathers of the inhabitants of Ajalon, who drove away the inhabitants of Gath. So we see the Philistines there and the Israelites and the Philistines and the Israelites. Describing the period immediately after the division of Israel and Judah, we read this of Rehoboam, king of Judah, from 2 Chronicles chapter 11, from verse 5, and Rehoboam dwelt in Jerusalem and built cities for defense in Judah. He built even Bethlehem and Etam and Tekoa and Bethzur and Shako and Adullam. We will see Adullam and Marashah later in this chapter. And Gath and Marashah and Ziph and Adarim and Lachish, which we will see later on, and Azekah and Zorah, and Aijalon, and Hebron, which are in Judah, and in Benjamin, fenced cities. And he fortified the strongholds, and put captains in them, and store of victual, and of oil, and wine. Several of these cities are mentioned again later in this chapter of Micah's prophecy. So we see that Micah is prophesying not only of the destruction of Samaria, but also against much of the land of Judah. And we see that when the Assyrians invade, they carry away the greatest part of Israel, but they also carry away 46 fenced cities of Judah. And we will see that later in this chapter. We'll see Micah prophesying against them. It seems that although Israel had indeed occupied Gath, Later on, the Philistines regained control of the city at some point. In 2 Kings chapter 12, in the 9th century B.C., Hazael, the king of Syria, is said to have fought against Gath and taken it, and the act was portrayed as a judgment by Yahweh against Judah in the days of Jehoash, the king of Judah. Hazael was then bribed by Jehoash so that he would not lay siege to Jerusalem. Not long before the time of Micah, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, the king before Jotham, it was said that Uzziah went forth and warred against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath. 2 Chronicles 26.6 In Amos 6.2, the prophet describes Gath as it still belonged to the Philistines. So the Israelites in this whole period just couldn't hold on to their territory. Surely also a judgment from Yahweh. Amos says, Pass ye unto Kalna and see, and from thence go ye to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your border? Amos was a contemporary of Micah. 
It may be conjectured that the Syrians lost or turned over control of Gath to the Philistines. Even later, in the annals of Sargon, after the destruction of Samaria by the Assyrian armies under his command, Gath was one of those cities subjected to the Assyrians, but they did not destroy it. The reference to the so-called House of Afra, here in Micah 1, verse 10, is sometimes interpreted as a place transliterated Bethlehem Afra, and neither Afra nor Bethlehem Afra are mentioned elsewhere. But the Septuagint translators, as they had done, it is sometimes interpreted as an epithet rather than a place, meaning house of dust or house of derision. The Septuagint version of Micah 1.10 reads thus, Ye that are in Gath, exalt not yourselves, and ye Anakim, do not rebuild from the ruins of the house in derision. Sprinkle dust in the place of your laughter. If we are to accept this reading, and this reading is every bit as credible as the Masoretic text by itself, it becomes evident that there may have remained, even to this time, a remnant of the Anakim, the children of Anak, who was one of the giants. In the books of Joshua and Judges, it is said that the sons of Anak were expelled from Hebron by Caleb, but it does not say that they were exterminated. One reason not to accept this reading, however, the reading from the Septuagint, is that the fragments of Micah found among the Dead Sea Scrolls support the reading of the Masoretic text. Now, I'm going to present an idea that probably hasn't been presented, even in Christian identity, even in my writing, even though I've long thought of it. It is often apparent that variant readings of Scripture, the Septuagint has one version, the King James, another version, or the, I should say the Masoretic Hebrew, another version, the Dead Sea Scrolls sometimes agrees with one, sometimes with the other, usually with the Septuagint, more often than not. Josephus has another version. It is often apparent that variant readings of Scripture were not necessarily contrived. We can't imagine that they simply made this stuff up. Rather, there seem to have been differing redactions from an original, somewhat longer text. And that's what I am inclined to believe. And that is one sound reason why we need to study all available ancient witnesses to Scripture and not disregard any of them. Now, the Septuagint has its faults, don't get me wrong. In a lot of ways, it's a lot more reliable than the Masoretic text. However, in a lot of ways, it's not so reliable because names were mishandled, because certain words were misunderstood. The Septuagint, and, and there are some clowns that deny this, but there's a pretty much a, a frequent... Dayleth Resh confusion 
the letter D and E R, the letter R in Hebrew being almost identical. And there's also a resh vav confusion, which may not be so frequent, where the V and the R are often confused. Well, well, there's a lot of clowns that insist that that didn't affect the Septuagint. It certainly did. The scribes were confusing the Daleth and the Resh, and sometimes the Resh and the Vav, all the way back in the time that the Septuagint was translated from Hebrew. And there's a lot of evidence of that. So the Septuagint is not perfect. Of course, we know the Masoretic text has lots of problems. We can't um, pick one or the other. We shouldn't be forced to pick one or the other. A lot of people say, well, the Septuagint, that's the Greek the apostles used. Well, you know something? If the Septuagint that we had today was the Greek the apostles used, the apostles would never disagree with it, and sometimes they do. Not all quotes from the New Testament follow the Septuagint precisely. A lot of them are quite different. So what we have to be careful, the apostles certainly did use a copy of Greek manuscripts very much like the Septuagint, but it wasn't the Septuagint that we have with all certainty. Verse 11, Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Saphir, having thy shame naked. The inhabitant of Zanan came not forth in the morning of Beth Ezel. He shall receive of you his standing. That, that's, not, uh, <laughs> that, that's pretty enigmatic, let's put it that way. Saphir is a place unknown. The Septuagint has Sanan, where Saphir stands, and they have Sanan in Greek letters, but Brenton writes it as Senar. It's obviously the same place as Zanan, transliterated. The, the verse is fragmented, and the word cannot be read in the Dead Sea Scrolls. <clears throat> the word in the Hebrew manuscripts, the, the word Saphir is interpreted as fair or beauty, And it, as it appears there, it is said to be a noun which appears without gender or number and without a definite article. Now, that is the grammatical form which was used to place names throughout works like the books of Judges and Joshua, especially Joshua, where the towns of each tribe are listed. So I'm not saying that Saphir is not a place name. What I'm saying is that it's not known elsewhere, and the Septuagint translators interpreted it as an adjective, or I'm sorry, as an adverb in their translation. First, Zanon, the inhabitant of Zanon in verse 11. Zanon seems to be a variation of the spelling of Zenan mentioned in Joshua 15:37, which was a town of Judah. Both forms of the word had the same meaning, pointed. Beth Ezel means house of narrowing, and the place is also otherwise unknown. 
It may be that Micah, being a native of this area, which he prophecies against, demonstrates an intimate knowledge of its smallest towns and villages. It may also be that he is not referencing places here at all, but rather his words are to be interpreted literally. This would explain the Septuagint reading of Micah 1.11, which has the inhabitant of Zanon fairly inhabiting her cities, came not forth to mourn for the house next to her. She shall receive of you the stroke of grief. Now the careful observer of the differences in this verse, in these two versions, the King James and the Septuagint, the careful observer would notice that Saphir is a place in the King James Version, but in the Septuagint, it was read as an adverb and translated fairly. Therefore, it is most likely that both instances are true, and this again, that may be a, a rather novel idea, but it, it can be fully supported. Both instances are true. Micah is using the names of obscure towns, which many of them are not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, and he's prophesying against the places. But those names also have meaning. And we should understand the meanings of the words as well as the fact that they refer to a place. We're going to see this even more evidently in the, in the, in the verses which follow. Both instances are true and thereby each of the names are being used as a sort of double entendre, because all the names have a meaning. And Mike is using these specific obscure place names to convey a message, while at the same time he prophecies against the places for their sin. Verse 12, For the inhabitant of Marath waited carefully for good, but evil came down from Yahweh, unto the gate of Jerusalem. And literally, let me discuss this real quick. Literally, this is fulfilled, as Micah says, because when the Assyrians did invade and execute this judgment against Israel, they also took 46 fenced cities of Judah, and they laid Jerusalem to a very long siege, but they didn't take the city. Again, Marath, this place that the King James reads as, as a place name in, in uh, verse 12, Marath is not known from anywhere else in the Bible. Once again, the lexicon states that Marath is a noun without gender or number, and there is no definite article. The Septuagint version reads, Who has begun to act for good to her that dwells in sorrow? So, that word sorrow is how the Septuagint translators rendered, in Greek, of course, not in English. The English belongs to Brenton, but it represents the Greek. That's the word the Septuagint translators um, arrived at from this, this word maras that the King James has as a place name. 
The Septuagint rendered as dwells in sorrow the words translated inhabitant of Marath, taking the literal meaning of the, of the word that the King James translated as a place name. I would assert that the place surely did exist, that Micah is testifying against prophesying against the place. But we have a message also in the meaning of the name. And we'll, we will see that shortly. The meaning... Uh, all right, let's go on to verse 13. O inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She, meaning Lachish, is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Now, the meaning of the word Lachish, for some reason or other, could not be identified by Strong. But newer lexicons, and I've checked several, say that it means impregnable or invincible. Here in Micah, it is interpreted to refer to the city of southern Judah in both the King James Version and the Septuagint. Both versions accepted the, the word as referring to Lake Heesh, the place. The, the context insists upon that in some degree. The Septuagint rendering of this verse has in part, she is the leader of sin rather than she is the beginning of sin. According to Joshua chapter 10, the Amorites who originally dwelt in Lachish before the Israelite conquest of Palestine were so completely exterminated that Lachish was later held up as an example for the extermination of the Canaanites in other cities. 2 Kings chapter 18 indicates that the Assyrians besieged and took Lachish without destroying it. Then Sennacherib used the city as a headquarters for the conquest of Judah. Jeremiah later describes Lachish as one of the cities of Judah that remained when the Babylonians later fought against and took captive the remnant of Judah and ostensibly destroyed Jerusalem and Lachish. We will talk more about this passage momentarily. Verse 14, the word for therefore thou shalt thou give presents to Morasheth Gath, to the houses of Akzeb, I'm sorry, the houses of Akzeb shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Now the word for presents has been interpreted, interpreted as parting gifts. However, the, the word may simply and more literally sim, simply mean a sending away. That's all it has to mean. Presence is inferred by the translators. Parting gifts, that's inferred by the translators. It, sim, it may have been the custom, but it simply means a sending away. The word Akzib, the houses of Akzib, shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. The word Akzib means deceit. However, it was the name of a town. It was mentioned in, 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 um, as being a town of Judah in Joshua chapters 15 and 19. 
The word rendered lie in this passage is a closely related form of the same word which gives us the name oxib. And Strong says oxib with a slightly different spelling for that word lie. Thus, Micah is making a play on words relating to the meaning of the name oxib. The Septuagint reads, therefore shall he, referring to the inhabitant of Lachish, which would be a general term for any Israelite dwelling there. Therefore shall he cause men to be sent forth. So they, that, they, that, that word presence, I said, means a sending away. That's the way the Septuagint translators had, had interpreted it. Men shall be sent forth. As far as the inheritance of Gath, now inheritance of Gath is Morashef Gath in the King James, and that's a more literal rendering rather than transliterating the word Morashef. They translated it. It could also mean the possession of Gath. The inheritance of Gath seems to refer to some area of Gath maintained by Israelites. And that would be where Michael was from. Therefore, he's called the Morisite after Morisheth Gath, which is the Hebrew form of the phrase. It may be rendered possession of Gath if the Israelites possessed land in Gath even after the Philistines took, took it over, after the Philistines took Gath back from Israel, if the Israelites maintained a part of it, that may be called the possession of Gath, the Israelite possession in Gath. That's, that, that's, that, that's the only interpretation I could think of that makes sense in every way. The Septuagint took the name of Oxib that we see in the later part of verse 14, the houses of Oxib shall be a lie, and they didn't interpret it as if it referred to the town which certainly did exist, it's mentioned elsewhere, they interpreted it literally. They, they, they um, interpreted it as deceit, and, and, and lies and deceit are considered vanity. I'm sorry, they interpreted it by a word that means vanity, and, and they used, even though Brenton's version has vanity and vanities, the words are actually two different words in Greek that the Septuagint translators used, and, and it's matahios and, and, um, and kenos. I mean, this is too much detail, right? But they, they translated oxib literally and not as a place name. So again, we see that the King James translators, they, they read these words as place names, and the Septuagint translators took some of these words, at least, and, and instead of rendering them as place names, they understood them to be literal. And here, more than anywhere else in these passages of Micah, but here it seems certain that, that towns of Judah were singled out because of the names which they bore. And, of course, Micah used the names of some rather obscure places because they're not mentioned elsewhere. But he singled out certain towns of Judah in his prophecy because of the names which they bore. 
because nearly every Hebrew name was also a common word with a common meaning, the names of these towns seem to have contributed a much deeper meaning to Micah's account of the judgment against Israel, which he is relating. The interpretation in the King James Version usually settled on the place names. The Septuagint took a lot of them literally and rendered them literally, but it would be need to study it from both angles because there's, that there's a message within the message. There's literal meanings behind all of these place names that Micah is using to illustrate the, the sins of these people, the response to, to their sins, and, and we're going to see that this that this is um, that this is quite striking when we talk about Lachish, and and we've already read verse thirteen, but then we might understand it. Those dwelling in Maroth, which was a town in verse twelve, were those dwelling in sorrows, referring perhaps to those who are repentant in Israel, because verse 12 tells us that they wanted good. Those dwelling in sorrows, those dwelling in Marath, wanted good. But only judgment came from Yahweh. That's verse 12. Now verse 13. How could Lachish be the beginning of sin to Israel. Lachish isn't the capital city. Lachish is not a center of idolatry. All throughout the prophecies of Amos, Hosea, it's Bethel and Dan that are the primary centers of idolatry in Israel. Lachish, the idolatry of Israel wasn't established there. So far as we know from Joshua, all of the Canaanites were expelled from Lachish. All of the Amorites Without missing a single one, they were totally slaughtered. Only Israelites, ostensibly, I mean, people move, right? But ostensibly, only Israelites dwelt at Lachish. How could Lachish be the beginning of sin to Israel? Because Lachish means invincible. As the proverb tells us, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16, 18. In Hosea, Hosea's prophesying against this very same people. Hosea 5, 5, referring to the same apostasy described here by Micah. Hosea said, and the pride of Israel does testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. So we see that Lachish means invincible. There's a meaning in the name. And Micah chooses that town. Because the town is going to be judged by Yahweh, all these towns of Israel and Judah are going to be judged. Micah is selecting certain towns. Marath was a place. Marath means sorrows. Those who dwell in sorrows. Those who dwell in Marath, the town. 
Those who dwell in sorrows wanted good. They found only judgment from God. Lachish was the beginning of sins. Lachish means invincible. Hosea tells us, these Israelites had pride from that invincibility, which was a matter of their relationship, their special relationship with God against their enemies. Men would be sent to the inheritance of that. I don't know if I should make the connection, but to me, that is reminiscent of Isaiah's oracle against the same children of Israel, that the children of Israel would fly upon the shoulders, or in, in the Septuagint, it's fly upon the ships of the Philistines towards the west. Isaiah 11.14. The houses of Aksib, or deceit, the houses of deceit, which is what Aksib means, would be a lie to the kings of Israel. Now, Aksib, too, is a place. Micah's using the name of one of these towns that are expected, that, that he's prophesying judgment against. He's using the name of one of them again to tell his story. The houses of Aksib, which means deceit, would be a lie to the kings of Israel, meaning that the people by no means imagined their judgment. They thought they were invincible. The pride of Ephraim, Hosea spoke about. So this prophecy of Micah we have to study the meanings of the names. There's a greater message than what we literally read in the King James Version or in the Septuagint Version, because one version usually went with the, these words as place names, and another version, it translated a lot of them, but then you don't realize that Micah is singling out places and he wants us to see both meanings. Verse 15, the King James Version. Yet will I bring an heir unto thee, O inhabitant of Marishah. He shall come unto Adalam, the glory of Israel, and, and there's another hidden meaning in these place names, or, or at least I would assert. Marashah. First, let's give some background on that. Marashah was a city in Israel. It later, in, in Greco-Roman times, was known by a Hellenized form of the name as Marissa. Marashah is ancient Marissa, a place often mentioned by Flavius Josephus. It was once a city of Judah, mentioned in Joshua 15.44, where it's mentioned along with Aksib. It was the place where Asa had defeated the Ethiopians, or the Cushites, 2 Chronicles chapter 14. It was the home of the prophet Eleazar, the son of Dodovah of Marashah, who prophesied against Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. The name Marashah basically means a summit, 
a peak of a hill or a mountain. Later on, however, Marisa, the same place, was one of the many cities of Judah and Israel which were taken over by the Edomites after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of Israel. Now, this is so is absolutely clear not only by observing the inhabitants of many of the former cities of Judah and Israel in the later accounts of Josephus, but also in Ezekiel chapter 34, where the prophet records the words of Yahweh and, and attributes to Edom the statement, because thou hast said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it, whereas Yahweh was there. Josephus records battles by the early Hesemonians, Judas Maccabee and his brothers, against the Edomites of Hebron, Marisa, and other towns. The Edomites had taken over all those towns after the Israelites were deported. And in those battles, Marisa was burnt. However, a couple of generations later, Hyrcanus, chose to convert the Edomites rather than destroy them. Josephus records in Antiquities Book 13 that Hyrcanus took also Dora and Marisa, this Marisha of Hosea, uh, I'm sorry, we're in Micah, of Micah 115. Hyrcanus also took Dora and Marisa, cities of Edomia, and subdued all the Edomians and permitted them to stay in that country if they would submit to circumcision and make use of the laws of the Judeans. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the right of circumcision and of the rest of the Judean ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them, that they were hereafter considered to be Judeans. So all these Edomites that moved up and into these cities of Israel, Hyrcanus took the liberty of converting to be, well, whatever, circumcised Edomites. That's what he converted them to be. But Herodotus, I'm sorry, Josephus and, and all of the contemporaries considered them to be Judeans. Of course, from this point, these Edomites eventually came to command within 150 years. They came to command all of Jerusalem and Judea, including the temple. And they controlled that by the time of Christ. Adullam is a town of Judah known from both Joshua 15.35 and the accounts where David found refuge in a certain cave there. Now, now that's interesting because Adullam means justice of the people in keeping with our observations of the prophecy of Micah to this point, this name, this meaning, certainly is significant. The Septuagint translators also, however, understood it to refer to the name of the town here. 
The word translated as heir in this verse, verse 15, yet I will bring an heir unto thee. It's translated as heir in both the King James Version and in the Septuagint. This is the same Hebrew word from which the lexicons derive the term Morashev, which we see in, the term, in, in, in Morashev Gath here. This word air comes from the same word. Remember I explained that Morashev Gath could mean inheritance of Gath or it could mean possession of Gath. That's because the root word behind Morasheth is Yaresh. It's Strong's number 3423. And it's defined by Strong primarily as to occupy a place by driving out the previous inhabitants or to expel or to take possession of something. Because of this meaning, to take possession, in various contexts, it was translated as to seize or to rob or even to inherit, which is also to take possession of something. So the translators often simply translated it as heir, as they did here in Michael 1.15. I wouldn't translate it that way, understanding the historical context of this prophecy. First, let me say that the repetition, there's repetition here of this form, forms of the word Morishev, and, and that indicates that Michael was further using plays on words and, and idiomatic meanings and double entendres, which are conveyed in these original translations. In, well, I'm sorry, they were conveyed in the original language, but they're lost in the translations. That's why we have to look at the name of the place, and we have to look at the meaning of the name. Perhaps Micah, verse 15, should be interpreted to say, Yet will I bring one who takes possession unto thee, O inhabitant of Marashah. He shall come unto Adalam, the glory of Israel. Perhaps that should say, He shall come unto the justice of the people, the glory of Israel. Now, that might be confusing, but it's not when you know the story. The Israelites were indeed expelled. Somebody else took possession. Marashah, the summit, was taken possession of by their enemies, the Edomites, after the Assyrians removed Israel. Perhaps we could take this a step further now, seeing that both Jerusalem and the claims to the inheritance of Israel and remember that Marashah, which the Edomites took over, means summit. Both Jerusalem and the claims to the inheritance of Israel were eventually infiltrated and taken over through, at least in part, Marisa, the Edomite infiltration into Jerusalem, the temple, Everything the Edomites gained control of in the first century B.C., they did through the conversion of the Edomites into Judaism, which primarily took place, according to Josephus, in Dora and Marisa, and the surrounding cities as well. 
Yet the justice of the true people of Israel is found in their punishment and in the judgment of God as it were those Edomites who crucified Christ. So this prophecy of Micah has much deeper meaning in my understanding anyway than what we simply read in the King James Version. When we look at the meanings of the, the, the names of those towns and consider their history. Verse 16, make thee bald and pull thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy baldness as the eagle, for they are gone into captivity from thee. Shaving of the head, make thee bald, was a sign of disgrace and grief. The Septuagint has this verse, Shave thine hair and make thyself bald for thy delicate children. In, in other words, we're going to shave our heads because we're lamenting over those children. Increase thy widowhood as an eagle. I, I don't understand that one, except that Yahweh is putting these people away. And many of their men are certainly being slain. For thy people are gone into captivity from thee. The prophet speaks of something which is imminent, which is the captivity being forewarned by Yahweh God. He speaks of it as if it had already happened. For thy people are gone into captivity from thee. In that same spirit, Paul says of the promise of Abraham that Yahweh, at the time of Abraham, calls things not existing as existing which is the purpose of prophecy. We see that repeated here in Micah. That'll end the first part of our presentation of Micah. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, Pragmatic Genesis, part 14. Next Friday, Micah part 2. Praise Yahweh, and good night.